Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Steve Edwards. Hello from cloudy and cool Portland. Dan Shapir. Hi from sunny Tel Aviv, where it's actually not so sunny anymore because it's evening. But anyway. Doesn't his new mic sound so nice? <laughs> and it does. Silky smooth. Silky smooth. That's right, Dan. Smooth Shapir. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We've got AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live from Pleasant, really, really hot grove. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week we have a special guest and that's Liran Tal. Hey, everyone. Thank you all for having me today. I'm joining you from uh, from Ashdod, which is uh, probably one hour south of Dan. Still not so much sunny here as well because this is a very tight uh, cl- uh, time zone here. So we're still uh, in the same. What's up? Good deal. Yeah, in Israel, everything is more or less an hour away. <laughs> that's just the way it is. Small country. True. Yeah. And- you work for uh, Sneak? Snick? I am, yeah. That? It's uh, always a problem pronouncing that one, so I know it's uh, it's Snick. Snick. Okay. There you go. Good deal. Yeah, that <laughs> fancy purple shirt that you're wearing that our listeners can't see. Yeah, I, I've I've been... I In 2019, I went to a bunch of conferences and Snick was always there, right? But I'd, I'd always show up too late to get the large shirts, right? Because the large and extra large shirts would always be gone. And so I'd get the medium and the small shirts. And so my kids, so whenever I see those shirts, I'm like, oh, my kids have those shirts. <laughs> but I'm still shocked that you're talking about the shirt rather than the hat. What hat? What hat? Well, <laughs> <see it. laughs> oh, that's a hat? Oh. Yeah, that's a really interesting hairstyle. Well, what I'm confused. Is it a Yoda or a Mickey Mouse or a goat Yoda? It's uh, it's point is to confuse them for uh, security by obscurity, but um, it's a funny story. Uh, I won't say all of it because I think we need to drink a bit before that. But it's, um, it's yeah, it, it was bought from a Disney store, so uh, there you have it. But it was pre the pre uh, the, the whole new franchise thing. This was like ten years back. So you were oh, drunk at Disneyland? <laughs> Can you not be drunk on, drunk on happiness? Gotcha. So it's the Mickey Mouse ears on a Yoda. Yep. That's what it is. Yeah. So somebody was drunk when they were making it. But uh, let's let's dive in and start talking about security and stuff like that, which is what Snick does. This episode of JavaScript Jabber is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build modern cloud native apps. With app platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point your GitHub or GitLab repository and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting, as it has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, and container images. DigitalOcean runs their app platform on their own infrastructure, so your costs are significantly lower than the other products. Plus, they built this new app platform on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path, so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. As a listener of JavaScript Jabber, you can get started for free. Better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you $100 credit when you go to do.co slash jabber. Again, go to do.co slash jabber to get your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of JavaScript Jabber. Do you, I'm just trying to decide the best place to start because when I went and would talk to you folks, usually we'd be talking about like container security and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Is, Is that mostly where you're focused or I don't know where 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 do we start 
Yeah, that's a good question where to start because uh, I guess security could be uh, interpreted and like lend into different areas. And so Snake kind of like operates, uh, I think started like the root of the roots of Snake was like in the open source packages ecosystem. So it was right. doing dependencies and things like that, like looking into it and there's a whole security research and, you know, teams around this, validating the information and finding them. And then Sneak went into the container space. So looking at, you know, Node.js, Docker images, for example, for all the JavaScript developers listening, you know, you may have some runtime vulnerabilities in the Node runtime itself, or you may have container vulnerabilities in packages installed, you know, libraries on the container operating system. And then you could go further to the right, if I'd say so, like, you know, more to the backend SRE sort of sort of way, which is uh, infrastructure as code. So, you know, you, you build an application, you containerize it, but then you need to like, orchestrate this into production in some way. And so you maybe write a Terraform or a Kubernetes YAML file and says, I need, you know, two replicas of this, five replicas of that, et cetera. And so you may have, you know, security issues there, like you may have open ports or privilege escalation because the container is running as, uh, you know, could escalate into root privileges and things like that. So all of that, you know, going all of that way. And then what I think would be interesting to talk about more today is actually more of that shift left, which is security vulnerabilities that come in from your code, from my code, from basically everyone's own code, which is like a new thing that Sneak is doing and super interesting in the way that we're doing it. So oh, you went total DevOps, dude. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He, he went total DevOps and then he said shift left, which is a DevOps term, which usually means you go to the application code. So anyway, go ahead, Dan. No, so I was just to get the, to understand the exact perspective. So are, are we going to talk mostly about the security in the code that we write ourselves or mostly in the code that we use, libraries, packages, stuff like that, that we import into our code? Shh, that stuff's all secure, Dan. <laughs> For sure. I'm still, I. so, you know, we spoke about, we had this interesting episode with StackBlitz where we were talking about them having, they're implementing their own NPM, which works within the browser and how you load all, download all the stuff. And the one question that I didn't bring up, AJ was was asking, how do they manage to download like gigabytes of, of code and stuff uh, really quickly? And I'm like, I, my thought was we're building, especially for the web, we're building bundles that should weigh something like, I don't know, 100K, 200K. Why do we need to download gigabytes of NPM stuff if at the end of the day, all we want is 100K? It's a good thing AJ's got something in his mouth. I don't want 100K. How about 10K? Well, 10K okay. might be cutting a little shy, but 30K. Anyway. 30K. Yeah, but still, why why download gig, a gigabyte of stuff for 10, 20, 50K worth of code? Anyway. 1.21 gigabytes. Design yeah. by committee. All right, let's let us let's let Liren have a crack at this one. <laughs> that is a, this is funny because I, I, I guess I convert that in my head uh, from the front end part of it to the back end, which is for me is like, you know, one gigabytes of node modules folder or something like that. But, you know, uh-huh. Always yep. uh, get back into, which is if you think about it, it's you know less painful, right? Is that that doesn't really impact uh, the the end user in a way. It's like developers are the end user, and you package it up, uh, you know, somewhere and deploy it. So that's a different kind of concern. But but I hear you, Dan. I think like what's uh, what you're kind of like raising here is, and we'll maybe like uh, shift a bit from secure coding or you know security for developers to like a different concerns, which would be an interesting way to connect it back, and that is supply chain security. 
like this said, you know, we are all part of this uh, open source ecosystem, this thriving ecosystem, especially in JavaScript. We're all using open source. It's pretty much impossible to use anything that's not open source. And um, we are targets for others others to basically infiltrate or do malicious things. And uh, I have actually pretty interesting ways of how we connect that story from supply chain security into code security. But uh, you know, I'm happy to just start off with that. And you know, it would be actually very interesting for me to like ask you, like, are you concerned, anyone on this panel, about you know open source supply chain security? And like how do you think that, you know, where does this meet you as a developer? Uh, well, of course, I of course I am. Because at the end of the day, I'm a, a significant portion of the code that gets shipped today is code not written by the developers of the applications. Mm -hmm. I, I recall statistics like uh, like three fourths of uh, downloaded code for, into the front end is third party code, whether it's bundled into the same package or brought uh, from an external source, it doesn't really make a difference, especially in the context of the browser, because uh, it's all running with the exact same privilege within the browser frame or tab or whatever, or what, what have you. And, and on the back end, it's the same, but even worse, because all the code has like, usually has really significant privileges into the operating system, the ability to touch files, open sockets, do whatever. And, mm -hmm. and, and again, we were talking about downloading gigabytes of stuff in order to create 200 kilobyte bundle, regardless whether it's running front end or back end. Who has the time and inclination to wait through that uh, gigabyte of stuff and figure out what's, what's all the stuff that's in there and what it's actually doing? So, so for sure, I'm concerned. But to, for a lot of developers, that's just basically the the, the cost of doing business. Uh, well, the the other thing with the supply chain stuff that's fascinating to me. So, I'm going to back this up for just a second. We have Adventures in DevOps on the DevChat.tv podcast network, and we've had conversations about this stuff, right, with your dependencies. And you know you can go listen to some of those. I'll put links to some of that in the show notes. But what's fascinating on on top of that was uh, the solar winds breach, right? And how that all came about. So sometimes we think about some of this in the context of, okay, you know, there's something in the tool chain that's a dependency of a dependency of a dependency somewhere in the chain that provides some helpful utility. That's why it's in there. And then it's got some malicious code in it, right? But, the way that the SolarWinds hack happened was that they actually hacked the build server, right? Yep. And so <laughs> it, it wasn't that somebody took over the package and then went in and said, <laughs> I'm going to put in this key logger or I'm going to put in this, send me all the password stuff, which is kind of egregious. Usually it's a little more sophisticated than that. But just to be obvious, right? I'm going to put this bad stuff in here, right? No, you know, they get on, say, Travis CI, right? And or they get on some build system somewhere, right? And so Coder Dude goes and writes this awesome utility that I need in TypeScript. And then they had some build system out there. And so before they ship it in their webpack build in one of the plugins, right? It goes and it says, Oh, and give me access to this, right? Yeah. And so it's it, it might be in their tool chain that has the breach to my tool chain, right? 
And so it, it's even more insidious than that. And, and we're not even thinking about some of this stuff, right? And so I, I don't even see it because it's buried because it's, it's sophisticated in the way that it was put in in the first place. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this this is, you know, solar winds as, you know, one example, I think making the headlines and we can talk about more. I have I have a whole kind of like, you know, talk about, uh, you know, talking to the, the CISOs where I kind of like go around, you know, supply chain security and what it actually entails. And I think what you're kind of like Charles talking about here is you know, developers are basically now targeted as malware distribution vehicles. We are now developers in their CIs and their tools. We are being targeted. Mm-hmm. EventStream has been a great example of that. You know, 2 million downloads, a package that was, you know, largely. Oh, you know, yeah. I wouldn't say unmaintained, but it was, you know, it wasn't really actively maintained. And, you know, Dominic, the person owning that, you know, is a very good person, but he was maintaining 500 other packages on NPM. You know, someone chiming in, they want to help. Of course, it it give them some help. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of like how hijacking happens. We'll put a link to that episode in too. Definitely. So I think if you want to be like, you know, if you haven't been concerned enough about open source uh, supply chain security, I'll, I'll give two perspectives here. I'll start from... Winding back into, you know, 1984, there was this uh, maybe anonymous developer to some of you here, maybe not, this uh, Turing Award winner called uh, called Ken Thompson. So not a very popular guy. Maybe some people know him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Being you, a bit you involved, should. Yeah, you should. So this person had this uh, paper called uh, Reflections on Trusting Trust back in 1984. And he kind of like describes how he backdoors the Unix login program. And then he continues and says, well, I'll go ahead and add a backdoor to the C compiler. So like when the C compiler compiles the, the, login, the login program, that's when you know the backdoor will get injected. But then he goes and says, well, you know what? People use compilers to compile stuff. So what I'll do, you know, people might look at the compiler source code. So I'll compile the compiler that compiles the login program. And uh, you, you might need to like, you know, listen to this a little bit more, but you know, this is basically explaining, right, how you could hide a Trojan, you know, any kind of like malicious code inside, you know, inside other other code because you have to have a level of trust somewhere, right? You need to trust either the login program or the compiler or, you know, the, 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 comp- the compiler binary that compiles the new compiler. So you have to, you know, trust, you know, some something. You know, it might not even be the keyboard that you trust because someone could have keyloggered it or whatever. So... This is the whole supply chain security kind of like you need to trust something. And that's kind of like the concerns that we have and the balance between, you know, what do we trust? You know, where, where, like, where do we put a security controls and the mitigations versus what is, you know, a good enough kind of like UX, right? Like with passwords, right? One, two, three, four is a very convenient password, but it's not really, you know, a good password. So we should do something about it. And that's kind of like where, where there is friction. Oh, I better go change my password. <laughs> <laughs> I just changed mine, actually. But uh, yeah, go ahead, change yours as well. So I, I want to connect this into, into into our supply chain and talk about what secure coding is, because it can be, I think, anything from your dependencies to, you know, your own code to the, the Docker file that you build that may have vulnerabilities, you know, in the way that you build it, which is insecure. And the way that I'll connect it to JavaScript developers is, you know, Sneak was just now, uh, we have this, like, research team. So they they just disclosed this security research where we found vulnerabilities in Visual Studio Code extensions, right? Now, these are not malicious packages. This is, you know, this is our extensions that I use like for Markdown, like can view it nicely in VS Code and Latex and something else, you know, all of those cool blog posts that, mm-hmm. you, that you read about, right? Like the 10 must have developer extensions for VS Code. You know, one of them 
had vulnerabilities, actually four of them, if I remember the details correctly, four of them had vulnerabilities. In total, they had received over 2 million downloads. That's, that's 2 million users that are you know, using them are potentially vulnerable. Now, the thing is that the way that we connect that now to secure coding and you know the whole, the whole supply chain to secure coding is I've now basically downloaded a package. It's not malicious, it's innocent. It's just viewing markdown files, but it has a vulnerability. And what we demonstrate in that research is, you know, Charles, if I send you that link, any link on Twitter, you know, WhatsApp, whatever, on this Zoom call, I ask, you know, just open it. It's, it's a nice, really cool, uh, you know, uh, thread on, on, on Reddit. <laughs> they're, they're never cool. But anyway, uh, if you go and open that and click on this link, just by the fact that you've clicked on it, I can basically do things from path traversal to like, which means basically I can read any file that you have locally stored on your development environment, which is bad because that's anywhere from your .npmrc, which is your npm token if you're a maintainer, up to your SSH key and other you know very sensitive stuff. So it could be that, and it could be remote code execution that I could run anything on your on your development environment on your Mac or on your, or on your Windows or anything else. And this I think connects the whole thing where. Supply chain security, which is uh, a package that exists, you know, as an extension on VS Code, which I go to the marketplace and download, and it has vulnerabilities inside it, which someone can actually, in, which I never thought about this as like as an attack vector, right? But someone can exploit the fact that I did not write my extension correctly, and just by that that fact, they can actually get into my computer, and that's that's for me a bit insane, and you know what we're probably going to see more and more in the in the coming time. I'm a little confused by this because if I'm thinking of a markdown plugin, I just don't know where the vector of attack would be because this mm -hmm. shouldn't be running a web server locally. So I shouldn't be able to get into it from a web page. And if it's markdown, it shouldn't be executing any code in the document because it's a text document that displays, it doesn't execute. So where, I mean, I don't know if you just pulled that example out of the air or if, is that a no, real no, thing? I, I love you, that. You... Yeah, I love that uh, that example, uh, the case that you gave, because actually that Markdown extension has over one hundred thousand downloads, and what it does is it does spin off a web server that serves mm -hmm. the Markdown file in HTML. That's how you see it in the uh, in the VS Code uh, tab when you open it, and. Indeed, that was that has an insecure coding vulnerability where it has you can do path reversal. So it's enough for me to send you a link that works locally on your machine, and I can retrieve any file there and then send it back to me. Now, the actual exploit is a little bit more, I'll say, co you know, comprehensive and complicated than just that, because how do you open stuff in the browser? And even if I send you a link, how do I get to you know, your local host? How do you send something back without being stuck by cores and other you know, kind of like security mitigations? But you know we've got it, and this uh, you know this is live and on a like a GitHub repo, like people can you know see it and and you know view it and replicate the whole attack vector. But this is exactly what's happening, and remote code execution is also possible due to vulnerability in LaTeX. Uh, you know, an extension that gets downloaded 1.2 million times already. Wow, I I never thought about that. I just assumed it generated the HTML file. I didn't realize it was running a web server. I feel yep. so naked now. <laughs> I'm closing same. my I'm eyes. You, on the same, you uh, feel the same. vulnerable. Hi, AJ. Oh, that's better. Yeah. I'm opening my eyes now. But I wanted to ask. So, okay. So, yeah. So, we live in a scary in a scary world. And people do, you know, bad things, usually by mistake, sometimes maliciously. But, but what can I do about it? I mean, you know, am I going to just stop 
using VS Code extensions. I mean, VS Code itself is open source. Maybe VS Code itself might get compromised. Like, what do I do? Well, we you go back audit to Vim, everything. Right? Audit it all, all by yourself. Or does the Vim Markdown extension run in, run in a, a, a web server too there? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea about the Vim one, but I'll take a look afterwards and see. Yeah, Dan, it's, it's a scary world. And I think that is why supply chain security scares me a lot because I will not give up you know, using VS Code either. And even if I'm like a little bit more concerned about the extensions that I use, I just gave an example where the extension was fine, but you know it still had some flaws that allowed someone uh, to get in. And, and I'm not going to go and like read you know code review every package. That's like insane. So we kind of need to accept the risk to to a sense. But if you think about it from the other way around, it all kind of starts with us, right? As developers, what if you, Dan, as a developer, you build extensions? Would have you know tools and ways processes whatever you know secure coding reviews or such that would help you to basically write secure code just like you want to write you know secure we- uh, sorry performance websites and secure websites right you have you know web tools and lighthouse or whatever and you care about the bundle sizes and everything else security is something you actually want to care about but it's it's a bit hard because from the ex- from like I think the assumption that people you know it looks a little bit far and there's an expertise that's needed and so on so it looks a little bit maybe unreachable. And I think that is really what we're trying to help developers that sneak with that uh, sneak code, you know, study code analysis tool, help them so, find them. So just to, to clarify what it is that we're talking about. So again, from my perspective, and, and I'm not an expert in the field, there are really two general approaches that I can take, I think. One is I can limit the, the capabilities of the tool or the environment. So, you know, for example, one of the things that Dino does compared to Node is basically say, unlike Node, which basically allows anything or everything, Dino by default doesn't allow anything. And you actually need to tell it explicitly to allow certain things. So certain applications that bad code might still be injected, but then would fail because it just the environment that it's running in won't give it the permissions to do the bad things that it wants to do. But on the other hand, it's kind of like the permission thing on mobile devices. You want that app. So uh, that app says, yeah, but I need permissions to access your photos and your contacts and whatnot. And you say, but I really want to play that game. So you let it have them. And that's kind of my problem with this permission-based thing is, is, is yeah, if, if you're rigorous above, about it, you can block a lot of, of attack vectors. But at the end of the day, there we want the software that we want. I understand that you're actually advocating or describing something else. Tools that are saying, yeah, we live in this dangerous world. We are going to help you at least write less exploitable code. Is that is that what you're talking about? Yes, but I'm, I'm not saying this is the only thing. I, you know, security is all about putting layers of security, you know, principle called security in depth, which is, you know, if if we can limit the, you know, what 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 VS Code extensions allow, you know, what VS Code allows extensions to do, if we can limit that scope, you know, the same kind of like security model that Dino has, that's great. Like, let's do it. But you know, it's not done today. And mm-hmm. is it realistic to like expect that you know every new like Sublime and you know your VS Code and your iTerm and everything else that has a marketplace will adopt it? No, and it will take time. So what I'm saying to begin with, we as developers writing code, it would be great. If we start off, you know, with ourselves and, you know, write more secure code to begin with. Yeah, but the problem is, is that, like, how do I put it? So you're saying, well, you need to go and write the the plugins that that are secure. But my problem is, is that I don't even know 
I don't know the vulnerabilities that I don't know, I guess, right? I, I don't know where my gaps in my knowledge are. And so, I mean, I can go do research and I can go and try and figure out where kind of the low-hanging fruit is or where the obvious issues are, right? And I try and stay up to date on this stuff, right? Because I have a full-time job at a large financial company that they, I mean, they put us through a bunch of training, right? It's like, don't do any of this stuff because we, we could get in trouble, right? But at the end of the day, the, there's just so much to know, right? And you can go read up on OWASP and you can go do all this other stuff. But yeah, you know, it, it's impossible to know it all. You're right. This is stuff. And that's kind of like, uh, I think where the world aligns with what we're trying to do with developer first security tooling, right? right. Which is not not just uh, there's two things here there's finding the issues and then then there's fixing them so let's start with finding like you know like you said charles like how do we know if we are writing insecure code so i'd say there's we could try as uh, you know as developers to use different tools one of them is uh, if people use eslint as a linter you know most javascript developers mm -hmm. probably are aware of it and you know probably use it yeah we're I using exactly i use it as well but it says you know more popular as a code quality slash code style kind of, uh, you know, maybe guidelines around your code base. You want to make sure that everyone writes in, you know, in the same way and on the team and so on. It's less known as a security tool. And rightfully so, because it has, there's a, there's like an ESLint plugin security node, kind of like a NPM package that you could plug into to ESLint, but it finds, it's, it's too brittle, right? It finds things like if you're doing object inside an object. So it's, it, it considers it as an object injection, which is, you know, it's truly what it could be, but that's a lot of false positives. And if you're doing something like child process, you know, because you're writing a CLI or you need to do something, it will complain if it doesn't have, if it has a variable versus uh, actually, uh, you know, a hard-coded file name or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's too brittle. So we tried those static code analysis tools for security, and it doesn't really work too well. Like I don't know many use, many developers using those ESLint, you know, security plugins. Plus, that specific one is you know, very specific to Node, where, where you have a whole large attack surface on the front end with you know Vue and React and Angular and all of those. But the other way, trying to help developers is this, uh, you know, terminology for a set of tooling called SAST, which is Static Application Security Testing. And they are basically the same thing as, as the NeoSlint, but just a little bit smarter. They, you know, understand how the code works, you know, kind of like translating it into an AST, an, an abstract syntax tree, and trying to say, well, if something flows from the user input from, say, the express, you know, request object into a sync, which is... Uh, something that's you know a sensitive kind of like a operation like a database call or something like that, then that is a potential uh, you know maybe an SQL injection or something worse. So we want to use tooling like that. And the problem that uh, you know I think we had in the industry until now is we haven't had those SaaS tools that were built for developers. Like they were built you know in terms of they were meant to kind of like be used in a CI. They would take hours, if not days, to run. So I remember using that back when I was uh, working at HP Enterprise, you know, maybe like five, six years ago or so. We were running them on, on the weekends. And even at that point, we're running them with deltas over our code because it took time and then we needed to go through the reports. And usually there's a lot of like false positives, like you maybe sometimes have with, you know, dependencies as well. So you have to triage all of this and go through it and it takes time and so on. So it's not really, really dev friendly. And that's kind of like the problem with this. And I would, go ahead. Go ahead. If I can ask something about that, how much of the problem in that you're describing has to do with the fact that we are coding in JavaScript? 
JavaScript being such a malleable and dynamic language, I mean, would it been like a lot easier or at least more possible if we were using something something that uh, more static language, uh, more declarative type programming language, one of those uh, reason ML sort of things or Haskell or I don't know, something along these lines? Well, yes and no. I mean, there's definitely a significant factor in terms of like, have we ever seen, you know, tooling for JavaScript, you know, at, at a very good level? I don't think we have seen that, you know, too much before. And that's something to, you know, to observe and see if we're able to like find a tooling that helps with this. But also I, I would say like SaaS tools are built by SaaS company, by uh, security companies. And the question, I'll, I'll like flip the question the other way around. Like JavaScript has been, you know, kind of like a clear winner in the language ecosystem uh, for not for too long. It hasn't been there like a clear winner for the last 40 years. It's, it maybe have been the last five years, maybe a decade if you want to shout that back at like Angular from 2010 or something like that. So tools, you know, the, even, you know, at, at the beginning, like tools were focusing on things like Java and something else, you know, they weren't focusing on JavaScript. So there wasn't a whole lot of research and, you know, working with dynamic languages wasn't, you know, that much of a, of a, of a focus. But nowadays it is. Uh, it is at least like with, you know, this, the stuff that I'm involved with building and that's really, really fun and interesting. And the other part of it is beyond, you know, now understanding that this is a really good focus. Yes, the language, you know, might have some uh, challenges in terms of how we can, you know, identify in, in a very good way without false positives, a source to a sink and a potential vulnerability. But a lot of times there are very simple, I would say, practices that developers don't, don't do in terms of how they build up maybe a, a logic. And that leads to potential, you know, significant security issues that are not really hard to find out. For example, path traversals, for example, like, you know, you, we understand the logic where you're trying to access a file or save or upload or, you know, do something with it. And you are concatenating two variables without actually using a sanitizer before, or you're concatenating them in, in a bad way and so on. It, it goes to open redirects and, you know, many other I'll say vulnerability, potential vulnerabilities in your code that are not that hard to detect and actually really easy sometimes to fix as well. So that's really great if we can surface those. It's really amusing how after all these years, concatenating files, directories, <laughs> paths, or URLs remains such a challenge. It is, yep. This is the story of like that markdown uh, extension. It had path traversal. It just concatenated to strings. And sometimes, by the way, it's it's the fact that developers do not understand exactly how the underlying APIs work. So even if you do like path join, like the Node API to do to the, to join to directories, you do path join, and you do a dot slash in uh, in the beginning to make it relative. It doesn't stop me from you know doing dot dot slash. You know what? At, as the user input later on and, and escaping. Or, or, or people like, you know, sanitize, they say, oh, people will do dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash. I'll go ahead and sanitize it and then concatenate the strings. But people do not understand that you could encode, like URL encode that into 2% E, 2% E, which is a URL encoding for dot. And that works. And that has been a path reversal in the ST module, the NPM package that served, you know, was like a local HTML server. And has been, you know, people writing the, those pieces of code and not understanding exactly the best practices, exactly how to use the API, exactly how to how to escape or how to work with data, and we make those mistakes all the time. That really is strange because we've had SQL injection for a little while that was bad, and then every single SQL library since I don't know 1999 or so 
has had a secure by default query method. It's interesting that we don't have across every language a secure by default path join. You bring up a really interesting point. And I'm glad you mentioned that about the the URL encoding. I didn't know about that. Yep. I'm glad we're like learning new things here because this this is this is what you know, this is part of the of the solution, right? It's educating and creating awareness in terms of how to do things correctly and having the tooling that helps us do it as well. I'm gonna go create an NPM module real quick, path.safejoin. <laughs> so well, going it, back to no, so going back to the tooling, you started mentioning the type of tooling that that you guys are are either doing or looking at. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah definitely. So right, so Sneak does this uh, has this uh, product called Sneak Code, and it's it's free like freely available. But like much closer to the developers, it's available already in the extensions marketplace. Or if you're using VS Code or IntelliJ, you could go ahead and you know plug it, you know, install it and use it. And I think that is, you know, a lot of the shift of like the mindset, the mind shift of understanding where developers need security. And that is very early on. So it has a CLI as well. You have the sneak CLI, you can run, you know, sneak code test. And you can use that if you think about it a little bit more, like that's what I want to do more is position this as, as kind of like a linter, like this is a, another part of your local CI step, if you want to call it like that. And you can use it as like pre-commit hooks, which, you know, make sure that all of your open source dependencies are clean and make sure that your code is clean. And then if you go back to the developer experience, that is, you know, think that you are just writing a path concatenation, kind of like logic to do something, I don't know, for whatever reasons. But if you're doing that, while you are actually coding, the IDE plugin analyzes your code, sends it to our remote server. It happens super fast. It's, this is like seconds. You you know the moment that I do command S to save the file, that's when it, where it takes place. And at that point, if I've done something that potentially bad, I'll get you know that kind of like you know the linter kind of like where it underlines uh, the API call, the function of what I've done, and it will tell me what is wrong with that, whether that is a patch reversal or an SQL injection or something else. And I would say I'll go now to the to the to the extent of where I really love where this is going and what we're developing. If you use the extension, what we actually do is not only find those issues and like surface them, when you look at like the, you know, show suggestion to fix it, like Linter is kind of like, you know, one to do, it actually opens for you a tab, which, you know, in, in VS Code on another view and says, you know, these are three commits that I found that had a similar issue and that it, and it showed you the commit diff that actually fixed it. So. If you think about it, it's kind of like bringing Stack Overflow, you know, the website into your into your IDE for security. And you, I don't, I'm not going to recommend this now, but you know, in in an essence, it's like you could copy paste the the correct code into your into your code base from that suggestion of some other commits. You know, if you trust it enough, if you verified it, you know, and so on. And this is the fix. So we kind of like help you find, but not only find, but actually fix the problem. And this is, I think, where the, the whole developer-friendly mindset really works well, and where I would love to see this tooling evolves and uh, and get more adopted by developers. I'm just amused, though, that uh, you're now kind of selling us on this uh, VS Code extension after getting <laughs> us all scared about VS Code extensions. Uh, <laughs> I know. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a recursive sort of a thing, but I definitely agree. I mean, if we can get to a point where there's this kind of this uh, squiggly line under a bit of piece of code that says this code is potentially unsecure, unsafe. And in the same way that currently says this code does not meet our 
coding standard or unused variable or I don't know, whatever. And in the same sort of way, I have this option that says fix it. And, you know, maybe it just fixes it. Alternatively, it shows me several possibility of fixes and let me lets me choose the appropriate one. I would definitely go for something like that if the quality is good enough. Great. Uh, yeah, we sure. need to, yeah, I, I think what we, the challenge is how do we give good information with super small slash no uh, false positives? Because I think the more that you have the false positives and that's what happened with, you know, SAS tools and, and dependency tooling that, you know, had all the false positives. People avoid, like when they see it, you know, too much time and it's a false positive and they know it they'll go ahead and ignore it. And you know what happens at the end of the day, they'll ignore something that was actually true at the end of the day, right? Which is what we want to avoid. So tooling needs to you know, evolve to basically give you zero false positives so you would have a really good way to find issues and actually attend to them. Um, I, I want to push a little bit here because one thing that I've seen with like linters, I mean, linters is a terrible example, honestly, for this. But some of the other tools like uh, CI or some of the other tools that I've seen is that people become overly dependent on the tool, right? Mm -hmm. And so they kind of assume that the tool gives them a positive, false positive, true positive, it doesn't matter. They become dependent on the tool to just tell them everything's okay. And then they just coast, right? And so they they don't put any other practices into place, right? They don't actually go into, oh, I need to learn code structure. I need to learn design patterns. I need to learn some of the other coding practices that are actually going to improve their code, right? I need to learn how the framework works. I need to learn how the language works. I need to learn basic fundamental architecture and coding structures, right? So what are, if we keep talking about this term secure coding, like what are secure coding practices, right? If I were going to become a practitioner of this, right? Not a tool user of this. What does that look like? Yep. Great question. I think there's probably not one answer to that. You know, there's no silver lining kind of like a silver bullet that's right that would uh, work for everything. But if you, what I found the most impactful uh, practice and culture to have is to put it in your head really, really deep and thick that input is problematic and you have to handle with inputs. And I'm saying this and it might look obvious to people, of course, user input, you know, I never trust it, but input comes in so many ways, especially in today's cloud native kind of like world. And what do I mean by that is imagine the fact that when you think of input, you think of query parameters and, you know, form input and whatever, but actually user input comes from different areas. Let's say that you're building an app that uploads an image to you know, a server somewhere. Now that goes, mm-hmm. you know, this is not cloud native, though everything is event-based. That goes into an S3 bucket and there's a, there's a worker thread by another team that does you know, this Node.js worker thing that you know, listens to a queue, handles that S3 bucket and uh, downloads that message, sorry, that, uh, that uh, picture. And it needs to uh, extract metadata out of it with EXIF or maybe it needs to convert it to like specific resizes and whatever. So it does that. And, you know, that specific, you know, team may not understand or like completely realize that this file has been originated by a user. And there's so many ways that the the user, you know, an end user could have impacted and modified data in the file. Everything starting from the file name to the fact that, you know, the exit metadata that, you know, I was just seeing a tweet today of like a security research of uh, someone basically inserting JavaScript inside an exit uh, information 
the events uh, specific data inside a, inside an image, which another application actually used to extract and show this like metadata that you see on like a website, like what is the geolocation mm -hmm. and things like that. And they rendered an XSS. So from a file to an XSS. So it's that's why I'm saying like if you are conscious to the fact that user input comes from so many ways and you need to treat it correctly, whether that's, you know, escaping it or sanitizing it or validating it to a schema or whatever, that goes a long way. If you could have, if you could master that as a, I'd say as like an, an awareness thing, one thing that you take from security and you code review everything with that, with those eyes, I'd say that's a pretty big win. So, so code review is obviously awesome and awareness is important. But taking us back to tooling, and I'll say why why I'm why tooling is is so important from my perspective. First of all, we have come to rely a lot of tool on tooling, which I mm -hmm. think in this case could be a good thing. I mean, we are using Prettier, we are using Slint, we we usually abide by their suggestions. So if you if you can create a tool that gives good suggestions in this context, I think people will use it. So so that's a plus. And another thing is, you know, we, we have so many people coming into the industry, so many juniors, and, and a lot of them are not getting the ideal mentorship that they might get. And there's no reason to assume that they would be even cognizant of this sort, these sorts of things from the get-go. And, and with nobody around to tell them, tooling is like the best that the best thing that you can get because if it becomes standardized if you know when you install vs code this is it's going to recommend that you install this extension then then that could really make a big difference so this brings me to this question of how good is the tooling right now i can i chime in on this real quick too dan because i i agree with you and I'm going to add one more reason, and that is is that this is a constantly moving target, right? The All of the vulnerabilities that we're talking about here, and Liren pointed this out, right, with VS Code and with all of the different, like all of the different plugins and stuff and all that, there are going to be new plugins, there are going to be new vulnerabilities in the plugins, new vulnerabilities in the new version of VS Code. And so, yeah. If we if we are updating our tooling and we get new tooling and we're using the latest tooling, it's going to automatically pick up some of that stuff. So I completely agree with you there. And and it's an easy win. So yeah, how good is the tooling? And I also want to throw in, how do you choose good tooling? Huh. Okay, so I, I would say I would say a, a good tooling is one that works with your workflows, whatever they are. So if you are fine, you know, waiting the weekend for you know I don't know like a a, a SAS code can, a static code analysis can running and going back at it, that, that's fine. If you like move at that pace as well, that, that's okay. If you need something more, you know, in your workflows, like fast, giving you all this extra information, you know, there's tooling for that as well. So whatever makes you productive, whatever actually makes you secure, whatever helps you solve the problem, that's what you need. I'm you know, not going to say here, you know, use this or the other in terms of like vendors, but I think, you know, we understand uh, in general, and thinking the security space, and I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna represent the security personas, but I think it, there's a really great understanding that security tools that were up to a few years ago were built towards the security personas have now realized that what you need to do is build security tools for developers because they are key to fix things and not just keep ignoring them or like work on a backlog of whatever items that need reviewing. So. That's you know I'm gonna put the line in the sand there so that we uh <laughs> we don't go into uh, comparing vendors. Are you ready for core web vitals? Fortunately, Raygun can help. 
These modern performance metrics play an important role in determining the health of your website, which is why Raygun has baked them directly into their real user monitoring tools. Now you can see your core web vital scores are trending across your entire website in real time and drill into individual pages to focus your efforts on the biggest performance gains. Unlike traditional tools, Raygun surfaces real user data, not synthetic, giving you greater insights and control. Filter your score by time frame, browser, device, geolocation, whatever matters to you most. And what makes Raygun truly unique is the level of detail they provide so you can take action. Quickly identify and resolve front-end performance issues with full waterfall breakdowns, user session data, instance-level diagnostics of every page request, and a whole lot more. Visit Raygun.com today and take control of your core web vitals. Plans start from as little as $8 per month. That's Raygun.com for your free 14-day trial. That's fair, yeah. I guess. Yeah, but but still, I'm going to push on this a little bit more. I'm, uh, I apologize, Chuck. Um, I was going to put no. I was going to push too. So go ahead. I'm not asking about a particular vendor. So I'm not asking you to say like this. This product is great, but in this one is not. What I am saying is, what's the current state in general of of the industry? Like, can I even get good tooling, mm -hmm. uh, one that would safeguard me to a reasonable extent? So there are a few. I think it depends, like, where do we want to draw? Like, what's the scope? Uh, you know, obviously, if you look at, you know, third-party dependencies, there's like the GitHub advisors and all, you know, all the other tooling that exists. And I, I think that's good enough, right? That's for, for an individual developer, maybe maintaining an open source project, you know, those toolings, you know, the NPM audit and all of those things, they're good enough. I have my own views and, you know, you know, I can share some of the data as well in terms of this, of like why I think other toolings that have more security depth are more important. But if we look at, I'll say maybe secure coding, you know, perspective of like the SAST kind of things here, I don't know of many security, secure coding tools in terms of the SAS, the static code analysis aspects that are for JavaScript and that are free. And I think that's kind of like the, the mind shift change. Like if you look at the other vendors, the big players, it's this whole shift that, you know, Snake has in a sense of like, you know, offering stuff for free for open source and even private repositories, it doesn't exist. That is something that, you know, we've kind of like, you know, rocked the boat. Like if you wanted to buy, you know, you usually buy security and for a lot of money. And I think in that sense, we've made security more accessible to developers, to everyone to use. And there are other tools that you could use that are maybe open source, like, you know, SonarCube. I've heard people, you know, using that for Java and JavaScript, and it has this find bugs and some security rules that, you know, helps you. So I, I haven't checked and seen, like, what's the uh, the overall state across the ecosystem. I think that would be an interesting, uh, maybe a benchmark of sort uh, to say. But I think there's a really great and bright future in terms of what's coming ahead for developer, uh, uh, you know, secure coding uh, tooling. What I'm getting from you, although I, I, I understand your reluctance of being like too markety, is that, yeah, so, so I'll just phrase it like this. My understanding is that you're saying that even today, there are tools out there, even for free, which it's worthwhile to use. Yes, definitely. Like I, I I'm not gonna call out, I'm not gonna recommend you to use ESLint or the plugins around linters to do that. I think I definitely have really I think an objective and uh like data baked like the perspective on this, like don't use that's not good enough. Like the, this was not created for security, you know, for secure coding and security reasons. So don't use plugins for ESLint and stuff like that. I, I think that is not mature enough. But if you use, you know, go for the others that are, you know, they definitely position themselves as 
a, a static code analysis for security, that's probably you know a good enough practice to start using. So what in right. the, so if Can I'm I looking just, for the oh sorry Chuck go for it. I just want to qualify good enough as I can be confident that it's going to catch the majority of common security issues that are going to foul me up one way or the other. Probably. I don't I'm not going to, you know, commit to yeah, that. Yeah, prob- probably. Probably. Yeah. I, no guarantees, but yeah. No guarantees. But then the question is like, how many of those would be false positives? So, you know, it, it might yeah. find, but that's kind of like the problem. How do you need to go? Know, back, right. you know, back, you know, and tune it up to like the the, lev- the signal to uh, uh, the noise to signal ratio that you know you are good with. So what yeah, you're saying fair. is that the current generation of tools will help you identify security issues, real security issues in your code, but there's a real also risk or probability that they might show you a lot of false positives and create a lot of potential extra work to find the actual issues and not just the... Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that last part of really fine-tuning the findings and making them, you know, low false positives is what we need to invest in, so that developers can actually concentrate and focus their time on working with, you know, fixing, working to fix real uh, security issues rather than chasing ghosts. So that's what I what what I would like to see in the bright future of of you know developer security tooling. And what should I Google search for in order to find such tools? So the term professionally is called SAST, which is Static Application Security Tooling, or I think that's probably you know synonym with code security or static code analysis for security. And beyond tooling, what what also should I be learning? I mean, where should if if I want to understand at least you know the basics there. Because I think that even the best tools, you need to have at least, uh, like, especially given the false positives, you need to have a certain understanding of, you know, mm. what real issues look like. Where can I find this kind of information? So, uh, Port Swigger is, uh, they have a really good security content, like information. Uh, um, I'm sorry, say that again. That's Port Swigger. They've been, uh, I think they're generally kind of like being a good content creation around that. If you go, you know, they have some examples of what things are. And I think they have, they are doing a really, you know, decent job in terms of explaining, you know, technical things and technical firms in a good way. Like they have visuals and stuff like that. And it's, it's pretty good content. The, I'm in the right place where it says burp sweet on their website. Yeah, possible. <laughs> I love these names. <laughs> the burp sweet is, uh, is a, we won't go into that, but it's a middleman, not proxy. But anyhow, I think that's a good one. If you, I think we're doing a good job, at least, kind of like the sneak blog to create curate information. So, like we have this, uh, you know, five coding injection conventions that you know you you should follow slash you know be careful of. So there's like a you know a bunch of security best practices of like trying to also work with other people in the in the community in help of like creating awareness and building them and you know making sure that's available for for developers and. I would say lastly, I'm gonna connect this to the you know the awareness and user input. But you know, when you are working with you know working with data, you know, one good practice as well to to do it to follow is understanding how data flows is pretty critical to you know understanding what is the impact. And I'll I'll put two practical examples around this and I'll connect this to SQL injection, which you know AJ was kind of like you know raising in the beginning and uh, and what's the impact. So 
in the last week, I've kind of like been spending some time doing a bit of security research and writing vulnerable code so that I can detect it with this like uh, SaaS tooling that we have. And I realized some interesting bad practices that you could actually do that are, are not very obvious. For example, let's say you are working with a MongoDB database and imagine you have an API route that's accepting input, for example, the profile information. So you, you would do const profile equals request.body.profile, something like that. You get a JSON request, you parse the, you know, the profile information as an object out of it and fit it into something. Now, the, to that specific example, there are two, there are two uh, different vulnerabilities that I've seen happening this week. One of them is that it's, it could actually be a NoSQL injection sync. Why? Because MongoDB, it usually works with, you know, with structured data like JSON. So if you've ever seen a MongoDB API, kind of like the SDK API of how that works is you do user.find, for example, and you feed it, you know, J JSONs and like objects, right? And if you get that object from the user directly and you don't do anything, you know, to sanitize it, you just kind of like pass it into the, into, uh, into that user.find query, you will not have the, the regular SQL injection problem where you concatenate strings because it's an object, it's not a string. You don't concatenate it with anything. So it looks you know, innocent to begin with. It looks like you know, there's nothing wrong, except specifically with MongoDB, Mongo has these operators where you could do you know, $regex in your object and then something. And what happens if I, as a user in my profile object, I now send you, you know, dollar regex equals, you know, not, you know, nothing else or anything or something like that. Then I've essentially created a NoSQL injection that modified the whole query. And this can be a find or an update or anything else. And that's one example of how SQL injection, NoSQL injection vulnerabilities just happen just by the fact that we're passing data around. And sometimes if you look at understanding the, the code structure and the code architecture, Sometimes people might do, you know, the some, you know, the the snippets of this vulnerable code might be five lines of code. But if you look at really, you know, large teams, you know, developed applications, there's too many kind of like layers of abstraction. It goes from a controller to a service to a repository to an ORM to, you know, it goes through different levels. Usually different developers are kind of like working there. So you kind of like might assume, or maybe at one point in time you've put some validation, but at a little point, you know, a little bit further in time. Someone went in, did some refactoring, and you know now that validation is gone, or you know that validation logic is working differently without that person understanding that it came from user input, and without maybe if they understand it, it came from user input, they did not understand that someone can add data, which you know they don't need to like sanitize uh, the data that exists, but they can add new properties to the object that now effectively change it, and that's the problem. We do not always have that grasp that you know those kind of modifications happening to our code as it flows through the entire application stack that was a, that was a mouthful i know it was uh, taking mm -hmm. you towards several uh, code flows but i think uh, i have more examples of how these things happen and uh, i think you know understanding how code flows is super important but it's also super hard that's why we need static code analysis tools yeah, well, basically, the thing that we always need to remember is that SQL injection is just a special case of a general problem. It's, sure. it's the moment you put instructions inside a string, <laughs> you're kind of screwed. <laughs> and, and it might be SQL, it might be uh, XSL, it might be JavaScript and HTML, and now it could be no SQL or any other type of domain-specific language. Basically, it's, it's something that we do. 
we do it because it's easy to do it. We do it because we need to pass these instructions around across the network and stuff like that. And it's going to be a vulnerability. True. And that exact same example of taking an object from the request and pushing it onto some function could actually also be compromising you in terms of a prototype pollution vulnerabilities, which I know people have kind of like deemed them as false positives and ignores and what's the actual impact. But I have, you know, a few examples of, I've seen one of them this week. I've actually tweeted about it and like made a whole, like, well, let's find this thing together where, you know, we inject an object into, into a view and the rendering engine of the view template, like for example, EJS or handlebars or something else, it's actually you know rendering it and the impact of that of that exact JSON because I can control it and that's what's been passed to the view is being interpolated and now it can access actually several uh, layers of the uh, prototype chains of object in JavaScript and that leads to prototype pollutions. Yeah, one other thing that occurred to me too was that so we have on the so JavaScript runs kind of everywhere, right? And so we have sort of these semi-trusted... I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know. You were like saying that and it's like, uh, is, it, is it good? Is it bad? Yeah, well, it depends, right? And it depends on how your security is compromised. So we, we kind of sem- have these semi-trusted API consumption uh, engines that we usually use for rendering and, and, and communicating on, on web pages, right? It all kind of functions as a, as a web application, but then we have more highly trusted things that, that use like API keys or some forms of authentication. And we run like mobile apps or desktop apps or set-top like uh, Amazon Fire Stick, Apple TV apps, right? That are all written in JavaScript and things like that, right? And we fully authenticate them and we just kind of trust the, the API information coming in from them. And so if those systems are compromised, we may be swallowing whole information coming in that we may or may not even be taking as we may be trusting our our application to sanitize it. And if that application's compromised on its build process or anything like that, I mean, any of that could be coming in as well. It It just occurs to me, I mean, any part of this, you know, you're talking about this workflow, any part of that workflow is compromised and the whole system's compromised. I know that we're approaching the end of the show, but maybe it still might be worthwhile for uh, for listeners if you gave a really brief description of what uh, prototype pollution actually is. You you mentioned it in, in your description before. Yeah, yeah, sure. So you need to have some basic understanding, I guess, in JavaScript to understand that there's a prototype chain in the way that objects are built. And objects are usually, you know, kind of like inherited from that, you know, bigger basic object uh, entity. And what happens is if someone is able to, uh, well, I mean, even you could open the DevTools as you know, like maybe listen to this uh, podcast on, on your browser or something. If you open DevTools and you do, you know, the object curly braces and you do dot underscore underscore proto underscore underscore and dot something else, add an object to it. And then you do a console log for a new object curly brace with that key, you know, that, uh, that property that you added to it, you will find that it's there. And the reason to that is because that data is inherited. And like when JavaScript looks at you know, a property and it doesn't exist on the specific object, it goes up the chain and tries to find them. So mm-hmm. it's you no, know, I think when you think about it like that and you have that kind of like you know a visual in your head, you now understand that if someone is able to give you, you know, an object structure, any sort of object structure, or maybe you create an object structure out of data insecurely 
then someone is able to now, this is what we call prototype pollution, they're able to pollute basically to add or change specific properties of the base object. And usually where we find it is, you know, it, when we begin, when we began finding those, those uh, incidents of prototype pollution, we found them in, in library, in utility libraries like Lodash and others, because people were using those to merge objects, you know, merge one object with another, give it the query, the, you know, function parameter that says, you know, do a deep merge. That deep merge that does, you know, recursive merging of data was insecure. So if I had left, you know, a string that says, you know, underscore, underscore, proto, underscore, underscore, it would actually, you know, now flow into the, the real object that exists on, on the base object. And it will, it's basically similar to like doing an object, that constructor, that constructor and doing something else. So all of those are like attack vectors that someone can actually uh, pollute or add modified data on the base object. And it can be anything from, you know, you could think about someone adding data to it, like maybe the base object has is admin and somewhere else in the code, you know, the backend or whatever, they are checking that, you know, there's, there's like an is admin property on it. When it doesn't exist on the actual user, now the prototype pollution plays in because what JavaScript will do is it will look on the base object and that one has is admin. So that's kind of like the classic example of like how a prototype pollution flows, but it can, has, it can have devastating impact on running applications because I can actually pollute the base object so that toString as, as a function that exists on the base object would not be an actual function, but something else. And then when you run it, you get a denial of service because you're trying to invoke a function for something that you know I have now changed and it's not a function anymore. toString is now some, some variable that returns true. So that's kind of like how prototype pollution flows in. And the cases that we've seen it that you should be careful for is all those JSON merges slash when you are creating potentially insecure structures of JSON from input, you are maybe creating them and merging them in an incorrect way. Interesting. I hadn't thought of coming at it that way before. So I'm still uh, very intrigued when I see prototype pollutions in different ways as well. It's, uh, it's not an easy concept, I think, to grasp because it may have different impact in, in the way that it actually like flows in an application, but it's always interesting to see all of, there are many libraries that has this from type ORM, which is a, a, an ORM, like a, you know, an SQL in library, mm -hmm. and it has a prototype pollution. I actually have really working demo of that. I'll, I'll give you the links afterwards that you could look into it and understand how maybe a prototype pollution actually impacts a, a vulnerability in a third party dependency, you know, the coder is insecure, and you could actually work from that prototype pollution to create an SQL injection, so that you know the, the whole kind of like attack vector in play. I think that another way to look at it or to think about it is simply the fact that JavaScript is intentionally malleable. Uh, the whole thing about prototypes was created from the get-go to enable the language to be retro fit, uh, retrofitted with new functionality, and the same mechanism that enables us to add missing language features that to support old browsers can be used to modify existing features for nefarious purposes. So I could literally go in and modify the behavior of, like you said, of toString or concat or whatever and wreak havoc on the application. And again, it's because third-party code and first-party code within the browser or within Node run with the exact same privileges. Right. Perhaps adding here maybe a mitigation that we've kind of like discussed in, as an ecosystem, as a way to kind of like work around this is you could freeze objects. So you could you could have an object and, you know, say object freeze. 
and freeze specific methods or you know properties on the object and say to the you know basically tell the runtime i do not allow anyone to uh, try and modify this and that's you know one way of treating those what we call usually prim primordials the objects you know the array the basic objects uh, from being altered. So prototype pollution will not be a way of doing that. Realistically, it's like it's like you said, like JavaScript is malleable. So like I could go ahead now, create an object, freeze it, send it over to React, which will pass it as props, 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 and somewhere down the lines, you know, it will break the application. Why? Because I've basically did that and there's some library that expects different things. So it's practical way, not really useful way of doing it. Awesome. Well, we need to get to picks. Actually, I have a hard stop. So let's go ahead and do picks. But this has been really, really fascinating. Really enjoyed it. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. I'm actually going to start with picks and then I'm going to let the rest of the panel finish the show because I actually have to go to a coaching call. So I have probably been picking who not how like every week <laughs> for the last few weeks. I am still really, really enjoying that, that book. So I'm going to just shout it out again because it is really making me think. I have been reading other books. Uh, what I do, my process, I'll just kind of throw this out there is so uh, I, I get up in the morning now at like 4 a.m. And I read my scriptures and then I read another book. Um, and then I read a little bit of Who Not How and then I'll go work out. And so I go work out at five and then I come back and I do usually two, two hours of focus time because I don't have to drive my kids to school anymore. And then I'll do some family time and then I'll get to work. And so the other books that I've been reading or listening to more are, I'm just going to throw them out there. So one of them is As a Man Thinketh. It's an older book. It's pretty good. Uh, it's a little bit dense, like information wise. Like a lot of other books, they'll kind of mix in like, hey, here's a story. Here's an example. Here's And so they, they kind of illustrate it. And he really just, just packs in the information and doesn't give you as much of kind of the, the other stuff. But it is, is really, really good stuff. So I'm, I've really been enjoying or have, I enjoyed reading that one. And then I'm also going to pick Discourse, which is forum software. And I've moved a few of the show's prep documents over to it, as opposed to Google Docs. And uh, the guests and hosts that have been using it so far have really liked it much more than Google Docs as a way of being able to collaborate on the just being able to prep. So uh, the, the guests have been able to just drop in and say, hey, here's some of the things I think you ought to ask. Here's some of the other topics I'd like to cover. So some of it has been interesting because it's been, oh, well, we're going to change the focus of the episode a little bit to this, and then we'll have you back on to talk about this other topic, right? And just stuff like that. And so it's been really kind of fun to 
to to dive in and and see how this is all working out. So it's just been this migration process over to that. And then but but who not how has also been helping me just focus on getting these processes together for the the shows. So I'm going to uh, pick all of that and then my other pick is monday.com and I think I've picked that before too, but that's the task process system that we use for tracking all of the podcasts and things like that. And uh, it's been tremendous. So been happy with that. And uh, there was another book I was going to pick and I can't think of what it was. So unless I can find it in the next about two seconds, I'm going to let Dan go. Oh, Cyber Psycho Cybernetics is the other book, which kind of goes along with As a Man Thinketh. It's a little bit more concrete in its approach. So the one is more conceptual and the other one is a little bit more concrete in just kind of how you visualize and think about what you want so that you can manifest it. So yeah, those are my picks. Dan, why don't you go ahead and go? I'll type these in. And then yeah, if you guys can wrap up and then get us uh, stuff for the show notes, that'd be great. Thanks, Chuck. So yeah, I also uh, need to leave a little bit early. So I asked to go after Chuck. And I actually have two picks, which are actually both of them related to this podcast in a way. So one thing is uh, a while back, it was episode 442. We had uh, Denny Thompson on the show. And and uh, this was before he became like a real rock star in the industry. I think he had uh, like something like 10,000 followers back then compared to the over 100,000 followers that he has now. He's really come uh, amazingly far in an incredible short period of time. Uh, it was an awesome episode. I think it's one of our most popular ones. But it turns out that it had it had and it still has a positive impact uh, beyond its initial impact. It turns out that a lot of people are listening, still listening to this episode and finding a lot of inspiration in it. And uh, recently I, I came across the story about uh, this guy, uh, Sam Sigmore, who actually turned out that he was kind of like at a crossroads in his life, thinking about what where to go next in, in his career. He wasn't in tech at all. And then he heard this episode with Danny, and that kind of made up his mind to try going to tech. And nine months later, he's working in tech and making a living. And this is just an awesome story. And it's so great and so inspirational that uh, we're actually going to have him on the show as well, hopefully, I think like in a month or so. And uh, it's a really interesting story. And and I'm really happy about this uh, kind of situation where we have this sort of a gift that gives, keeps on giving. So so that was uh, that's one pick that I have. And the other pick that I have is also about somebody who was on our show, and that's uh, Alex Russell. He was on episode uh, 439. His episode was interestingly titled uh, More Jabber About Less JavaScript. Alex is really uh, a big proponent of of the open web and the success of the web and talking about how we are building, using the web to build the front ends that don't scale in the sense that they're too heavy for many of our uh, potential users and intended audience. We are pushing down, we were talking about 
today in this episode about pushing down so much JavaScript, you know, in the context of NPM and all the security challenges that it can bring about. But it also has all these challenges around simply building uh, interfaces that are too heavy uh, for the mo- for the devices that a lot of our users are using. So that comes up very often in Alex's uh, talks. And he's written recently written a really interesting article about it, the title, The Mobile Performance Inequality Gap for uh, 2021, in which he shows that while on the one hand, we're moving forward with the types of devices that, uh, that we have, like the newest iPhones are often faster than our laptops are at running JavaScript, for example, uh, the end result of that is that we're actually potentially widening the gap with uh, a lot of our users. So if we write, you know, developers often have the latest and greatest devices. And if we write our code so that it works well on our devices, it might be that we're leaving behind something like 80% of the world's users. Now, the reason that I'm bringing Alex up is that after 12 years at Google, Alex has actually recently announced that he's leaving Google. Uh, I don't know where he plans to go next, but I really hope that wherever he goes, he remains involved in the success of the open web. He's been uh, involved in a lot of projects around that, and we all owe him a a debt of gratitude for it. Uh, And those are my picks for today. So uh, thank you, Liran, for coming on our show. And I have to drop off as well. So bye, everybody. Bye, Dan. Thank you. Am I going next? Uh, if you want to. Typically, we have the, the guests go last, but you can jump ahead. I don't know. Go ahead. Go ahead, AJ. Okay. I will try to make mine long today because sometimes I say that I'm going to try to make it short and then I make it long. So I figured maybe I'll just tell the truth this time. Go for it. All right. So the first thing I'm going to pick because it came to my mind very early on in our discussion is the OMG USB. And this guy's Twitter account will probably link to his blog and his products and other stuff. But basically, you can do really creepy stuff with electronics these days in terms of spying on people. And microchips have become so small and so powerful that you can literally insert spy hardware inside of a USB cable and all sorts of other things, too. And so I think this was the one. I actually didn't double check. I just did a quick Google search for what I thought it was, and the name sounded familiar. So whatever. But if I remember correctly, this was the the Twitter channel in which I saw something about how they would replace half a battery with uh, from an iPhone with a GPS tracker and and stuff like that. Or at least that that discussion led me here. Anyway, it's just it's weird. It's weird what you can do with hardware. It's crazy. Also, not a super related topic, but kind of sort of related. So we think of North Korea and America as mostly a joke. And by that, I mean, the the average person, I think, thinks of North Korea as a joke, because it's kind of a meme, and you hear about it. And uh, nobody has any connections to it, because, well, it turns out that you probably can't. And I did not realize there's an interview I started watching with a girl from North Korea, Korea that details her experience. And it sounds Somewhat like if you were to mix The Dispossessed, which is a book that hardly anybody knows, but it's where the term Ansible comes from that then went into Ender's Game. So it's it's kind of dystopian novel. And then 
the Hunger Games, if you could mix those two together, that's what North Korea is like from her description. She has a book called In Order to Live, In Order to Live. I haven't started listening to it yet, but I I, I just got it and I will because I'm very interested to to know. But basically, I mean, we just we live such pampered lives and I I didn't realize the reality of dictators and people who believe that they're creating the perfect society at all costs, no matter how many people have to starve in order to create that perfect society and such. So I'm picking that because I think it might be a good thing for a lot of us pampered people to be a little more aware of. And then beyond that, I've been working on an authentication library. Well, actually, it's not really that I've been working on a library as much as I've been working on some authentication stuff for two different companies. And I am live streaming as I create it. So by the time that this airs, I'll probably be done with it. But so far, there are five different parts and they range between half an hour and two and a half hours each. And so if you want to watch someone create an auth library and talk about some of the security concerns and and whatnot, as I, I go along, I'm just you know, talking out loud as I, as I go, it's not structured. I didn't know what I was going to do ahead of time. I do a little bit of code and then I go figure out a little bit more of the requirements and I do a little bit more of the code and it's just real actual live work. And then the usual, if you want to follow me on beyond code, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, I've got the links to that. And uh, I typically post the more structured videos on the beyond code channel and my more live unstructured stuff is, is on my cool age 86 channel, but that's that Steve. Okie doke. Well, I'll uh, start with a non-dad joke and then get to the dad jokes because I know that's what everybody listens to this entire podcast for is to hear my dad jokes. Came across a GitHub repo as a view developer. This is kind of stuff that's interesting and it looks like a good starter kit for playing with Vue 3, something I haven't been able to do too much as I've been buried in a very large project that's still in Vue 2, but it's called the Vue 3 Starter Kit, Vue 3 Starter by Kutia Software Company. Looks like it has a lot of stuff built into it already. So take that for what it's worth. I'll put the link in the show notes. And then for my uh, jokes for the day, you know, in the past, I've talked a lot about, you know, my job history, like uh, getting fired from the bank because the lady came in and asked to check our balance and I pushed her over. This one's a little different in that uh, I turned down an offer to invest in a company that made crystal balls, but I just couldn't see a future in it. And then uh, talking about, you know, my mom, and she used to say, you know, the only way to a man's heart is through his stomach. She was a very lovely woman. Man, she was a terrible surgeon. So anyway, I'll put links to uh, both of those in the show notes. And for everybody listening, I'm watching two people really laughing, but they're muted, so you can't hear them laughing. So you're just going to have to take my word for it. So those are my picks. It's true. I was laughing. I actually did laugh. (laughs) Same here. It's uh, respecting you. It's muting in, so we don't... uh... (laughs) interrupt everyone else all right so i so think my, that's all we got right aj yeah we what but Liran, what what are your oh did Lear? oh i thought he went for some reason i'm sorry yeah no worries i'm gonna make mine short bit geeky on, on the cyber side of things just like follow-ups i'll start with uh working out which is like just an advice i want to give everyone else just staying healthy in some way of uh, this is definitely something that i've in the past year of like try to emphasize for myself i think i'm kind of like burning out in a minute <laughs> from work, but uh, at least I try to stay healthy. So please, you know, think about yourselves and, uh, you know, take care of yourselves. This is to begin with. My two picks would be a book and a podcast. A book is, is, you know, if you are into cybersecurity, but are interested, 
to kind of like understand what it was like when things were just starting out in terms of hacking groups from like the 80s and all through the, all through the 90s. Uh, there's uh, this great uh, book uh, created, uh, written by Joseph Mann called Cult of the Dead Cow, which is a name of a hacking group uh, back then. So this was all like modems and BBSs and things like that and how everything connected, everyone connected, how conferences, security conferences were run, how actually some of the most um, active security members back then were you know, part of like government agencies today and security companies. Super interesting book, kind of like uh, uh, goes through the, the life uh, the livelihood of hacking groups back then. This is Cult of the Dead Cow. The other one is a podcast, which is pretty popular. It's called Darknet Diaries. But if you haven't heard about it, this person basically curates stories, you know, supposedly what seems to be a real, um, you know, real information, real stories. Some people kind of like confess to, you know, to him, and then he creates a podcast out of it, or that person reads into government records uh, from courts about data breaches and like explains how the LinkedIn uh, data breach happened in you know 12 uh, uh, 2012 and things like that so super interesting the podcast and book completely recommend uh, if you have some time uh, in the background to do this that's so Liran speaking of cows you know what you call a cow with no legs I don't know ground beef <laughs> and then what you call a cow with two legs lean beef you know how you know what sound the cow makes I would say moo would be too obvious so I don't know what it's uh, if my my nose canceling was canceling that, but that's the it's sound of when you put it on the on the griller. <laughs> oh my god! I'm so sorry for all the vegan. I, I'm I'm getting converted to being a vegan with all the healthy stuff. So I'm so sorry about that. But that was uh. Don't be sorry. That's awesome. <laughs> my uh, my version of of pita is people eating tasty animals. So uh, I appreciate that one. <laughs> Cool. Well, folks, it was amazing. Yeah, it's good to have you on. And by the way, using path.join, percent to e does not resolve to a dot. So I did test that because I was scared because I've written code where I was expecting dots. But I think you mean URL resolving. You have to worry about the percent to e, not path resolving. Or does Windows, do, where did you see that percent to e turns into a dot? I guess it depends whether you are encoding it or not, because if you are getting sent percent to E, you may be just getting it as is and fitting it somewhere else, maybe to another URL or something else. So I don't know if Pat Join specifically handles that or not, but usually that's a sync maybe sometimes before it. Okay, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. But yeah, if somebody is checking paths when they go to the file system, they will not be vulnerable to that. Because I was thinking, yeah, I, I was I was thinking the OS level at the os level the the oh, path.join was doing that so you scared me you scared me really bad <laughs> but really, that's send me over your code i'll look at it let's see what we find let's scan it with uh, with with sneeko and let's see what we find then okay well so yeah where was the link to that is that down in here oh i haven't added it but uh let me do it now yeah add that link because i want to check that out and uh ping me if you find something or uh i guess that code is not actually uh public right but uh Happy to look at some snippets if you find them. All right. There we go. Link well, with, with that, snyk.io slash product slash snyk hyphen code. All right. I will be checking this out. Thank you very much. And with that, to all of our listeners who can't see me making wild hand gestures and emphasizing emphatically as I speak, adios. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.